Well, it was billed to be a big Prime Minister's Questions. Little did we know just how dramatic it was going to be. Moments before the Commons went live, we heard a rumour about a defection from the Conservative benches to the Labour benches, and it was introduced formally by Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer. Can I start by warmly welcoming the Honourable Member for Bury South to his new place and to the Parliamentary Labour Party. The Honourable Member. Yes, that is how Christian Wakeford was described, elected on a Conservative manifesto, but he's not happy. He only has a majority of 402. He clearly thinks he's going to leave, so he's jumped ship and joined the Labour benches. But believe you me... There is nothing honourable about this man at all, or indeed, the way our political system works. When I was leader of UKIP, back in 2013 and 14, I had several Conservative members of the Parliament who wanted to defect and sit as UKIP. I said to all of them, the only acceptable way you can do that is to resign your seat and hold a by-election. And two of them, Douglas Carswell and Mark Reckless, did exactly that, and indeed went on to win the by-elections. For the others, I said, it's no-go, it's not right, it is dishonourable. And this really is the dishonourable member for Bury South, Christian Wakeford. It is a complete insult to voters for MPs to have the arrogance to think that it's them they voted for, when the truth is most of us vote for or against the main party leaders. And what makes this even worse is this man actually voted for a private member's bill that said MPs should not cross the floor without holding a by-election. We did contact his office for comment. Answer, there came none. And it amazed me that Boris Johnson, in response, didn't even ask for the man to put himself forward for a by-election. You see, the truth, folks, is they're nearly all, not all, but nearly all, Career politicians, you the voters, are just useful to them once every few years. It's all about them. It is, I think today, a disgraceful episode. Now, on to the main topic of the day. So, Keir Starmer against Boris Johnson. I'll talk about all of that in a moment with Darren McCaffrey, our political editor. But there was one really big surprise, one very big surprise. Nobody, and I mean nobody, saw this coming. Veteran, Conservative Member of Parliament. He's been there since 1987. He's held very senior Cabinet positions, including that of Brexit Secretary. Let's see what David Davis, MP for Halton, Bryce and Howden, had to say today. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Like many on these benches, I spent weeks and months defending the Prime Minister uh, against often angry constituents. I reminded them of his success in delivering Brexit and the vaccine and many other things. But I expect my leaders to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yesterday, he did the opposite of that. So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him of Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. Order. Prime Minister, 
I, I, I must say to the right honourable gentleman, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, but uh, what, I can, what I can tell him, uh, I don't know what quotation he's alluding to that he re- he's referring. But what I can tell him is that I, and I think I've told this house repeatedly uh, throughout this throughout this pandemic, I take full responsibility for everything done in this government uh, and, and uh, throughout the pandemic. In the name of God, go. Boris there, uh, who'd been very confident up until that moment, much more confident, I think, than yesterday, uh, was really in a bit of a pickle over it. The quote, in the name of God, go, was first used by Oliver Cromwell back in the 1640s. Uh, It was used by Leo Amory in the big Norway debate of 1940, which saw the end of Neville Chamberlain's premiership. So Boris did know the context of it. But it was a surprise. Up until that moment, seven Tory MPs publicly had called on the Prime Minister to resign. David Davis is a very senior party member. And my question to you tonight, is David Davis right? Let me know what you think, please, by emailing farage at gbnews.uk. Let's cross to Westminster and join Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor. Darren, to begin with... The to and fro at PMQs kind of saw Keir Starmer in confident, um, jovial mood, but not really, I didn't think, rapier-like. And Boris Johnson, much more confident than yesterday. Who did you think won that battle of the two today? I think in many ways the Prime Minister uh, did, and I say that not because actually in the grand scheme of things it was a very messy PMQs, probably a score draw, but given where the Prime Minister was coming from, you would have thought Keir Starmer would have done better. Now, why do I say that? I think you're right. Keir Starmer didn't land the punches that he's done in previous occasions at Prime Minister's Question Time. He did make some jokes. They did go down pretty well. But I'm not entirely sure making fun or light of this, even though it's what some members of the public have done, was the right tone again for Keir Starmer. I think he kind of should have played more on the, you know, the, the difficult path that everyone has been and the, you know, the unfortunate people who, who have died because of this pandemic. I think for the Prime Minister, there was a very clear, deliberate change of tactic. Yesterday, he was very apologetic. He looked down. He looked beaten to a large degree. And clearly, Downing Street looked at the reaction of that, looked at the reaction for Conservative MPs and felt that this was not going down very well at all. And today he came out fighting, essentially, not really answering the questions Keir Starmer was putting to him, trying to sell the argument that the government was doing a pretty good job. And it seems, up until that David Davis moment, to be really working. It did seem to rally at least the troops inside uh, the chamber. And I think also the reason today, as where we're standing right now, and politics is a roller coaster, uh, Nigel, at the moment. It is up and down, ebbs and flows. At the moment, I think the Prime Minister and Downing Street will be pretty pleased compared to yesterday where they're at. It does seem things have calmed down a little bit. Even suggestions that some MPs may have withdrawn the letters to Sir Graham Brady. Andrew Bridgen, one of those MPs who's called for him to go, suggesting they're not likely to reach that 54 figure this week. And so then there's an era of calm now that Boris Johnson feels like he's he's bought some time. But David Davis, Darren, is a very significant political figure, uh, been a senior member of the Conservative Party for decades. That was a real bolt from the blue, wasn't it? 
No, indeed. And don't be wrong, when I've just said all of that, be in no doubt that the Prime Minister is still in an awful lot of peril, his premiership does still hang by a thread, and almost everyone I talk to, even some of his supporters here, still think he's in a pretty terminal state. David Davis, let's deal with him. First of all, you're right, former Brexit secretary, he was someone who, in many ways, actually came out against Theresa May. You know, he has defended, as he said himself, Boris Johnson in the last months and years. The Prime Minister himself, I was in the gallery looking at PMQs in the Commons chamber. You can see the Prime Minister was was kind of blown away by it. He didn't quite know how to react to it. It's certainly a surprise. And I think the fundamentals for Boris Johnson, and sometimes we get caught up in the minutes and the minutiae of all this, the fundamentals haven't really changed and the difficulties for the Prime Minister. And that is kind of threefold. First of all, are the further allegations uh, to come out? You know Dominic Cummings. Whatever you think about him, he's a master strategist. Almost certainly he must have something in his back pocket. Is he leaving the best to last in terms of trying to damage the Prime Minister from his point of view? Sue Gray's report is going to come out probably now uh, next week. I, I think even if it doesn't proportion blame, and that's almost certainly not going to happen, just the sheer scale of what has gone on in terms of parties in government and Downing Street, when that's laid out in black and white on paper, that will really be a real focus moment for MPs about whether to back the Prime Minister or not. And I think third of all, and this comes down to the public perception of this, the MPs, many people out there, simply don't still believe the Prime Minister on that crucial question about when he walked into the garden in May 2020 and he looked at people drinking and eating and having a good time when everyone else was told essentially not to do that. Do they really believe he thought it was a work event? Do they really uh, believe that? And, and sometimes we look at the politics at Westminster and most people aren't paying real attention to it. I think trying to get away from that is quite difficult. And from today, all people will really remember today is not the tussle between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. It will be that, you know, the Brex former Brexit secretary, some of the reasonably recognised David Davis is telling him to go and that he's lost another one of his MPs. And that can't be good for a Prime Minister, even though this evening Downing Street will feel in a better place than they did this time yesterday. Darren, thank you. Well, it was a big moment. Well, joining me now is Harry Mount, author of The Wit and Wisdom of Boris Johnson. Harry, good evening. Evening, Nigel. Um, this man, and, you know, you've studied him more than I have, he's been through scandal... He's been through disaster. He's been sacked repeatedly. He's been written off as being incompetent, as being buffoonish. And every time after a short lull, he's bounced back and achieved even higher levels of attainment. I mean, quite astonishing, his career, when you look at it. But this time, Harry, he's done, isn't he? Well, you might be right. Nigel, I once met somebody who had been at Eton with him when he was 13. At the age of 13, this contemporary said, he'll never do well in his O-levels because he's been doing too much sport, wherever it was. <laughs> he'll never do well in his A-levels. And he went on, he went to Oxford with him. He'll never become president of the union. Went on and on. He'll never become editor, spectator, he'll never become an MP. And every single time, this friend of his has been proved wrong. And I think there will be a moment when he's toast. This might be it. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, but Harry, isn't the thing that people laughed with Boris? They very rare. They, they might have got frustrated with him, but we're now at a point where just too many people are, and it's it's, it's a strange mixture 
of anger and laughing at him. I mean, you know, the whole idea uh, that he didn't know this had broken the rules, that he thought that it was a work event. Well, people either burst out laughing with derision or they're really, really angry. And I, I just don't see how even he can bounce back from this. No, you're right. This might be the moment that he's toast. But at the same time, and I'm sure you've talked to people like this. I met a, a counsellor in Cambridge the other day, and she said that on the doorstep, obviously people who hate Boris still hate him. The swing voters who voted for him in the last election, she met one who now hates him. But she didn't meet that many who flipped the other way. So it could he could be toast, but I still think he's got one more chance. I could be wrong. Ah, so you think he's the cat with one life left, yeah? I, I think so. And if Sue Gray says he lied to Parliament, he probably is toast. But even then, he might not be. It's obviously, as you know, Nigel, a convention that if you lie to Parliament, you must go. But it's not yeah. written in law. So there will be a moment he has to go. It might be now. I think he might survive. And the big thing outside the parties is COVID. If he's right in dropping restrictions early on COVID, and if our country comes out earlier than other countries and the economy booms, there is a small chance he might win another general election. OK, Harry Mount, student of Boris Johnson, author about Boris Johnson. Thank you for joining us here on GB News. Thank you. In a moment, I'm going to be joined by Professor Carol Sikora, and we're going to talk about some new COVID death data. It is astonishing when you find out just how few people have died of COVID who didn't have other medical complications. It opens up some very big questions about our lives over the last two years. So please, don't go away. A dramatic moment in the House of Commons. David Davis says to the Prime Minister, in the name of God, go. I've been asking for your reaction to that. Is David Davis right in what he's saying? It is farage at gbnews.uk. And I also want to say to those that are in the car or in the kitchen and can't access a smartphone or a tablet, but are listening to us on DAB, GB News on DAB. We've been going for a couple of weeks. An increasing number of people are following this on radio, and it's great to be speaking to you too. Now, your reaction so far. Phoebe says, no, Davis wasn't right. What he said was spiteful and malicious and done to cause as much harm as he could. He could have spoken in private to Boris. He's lost all credibility in my view. OK. Jay on Twitter says, David Davis is a disgrace and should resign or be booted out of the Conservative Party. Well, to be fair, he has been in the Commons since 1987. I don't think booting him out of the party because he thinks that Boris is not the right man to lead it would be quite the right reaction. Ozzy says, yes, how can anyone trust this tyrant PM or his corrupt government? Maddie says, yes, David Davis is a trustworthy MP who speaks the truth. Of course, Boris should resign. Boris is a disgrace. One viewer says, yes, just not in the name of God. 
David has his opinions, and I agree with this one, but he is not the high priest nor defender of the faith. No, I do agree with that. And lastly, not in the name of God, in the name of your bosses, the public. Well, of course, that often gets forgotten, doesn't it? Because it is the public, actually, that are the masters, and the MPs should be the servants. And too often, it's the other way round. In fact, it's felt the other way round all the way since that first lockdown began on the 23rd of March 2020. I remember last year Boris Johnson saying, you can have your Christmas, as if we should be grateful, as if they own everything. It's all been the wrong way around. Have a little think about this. The government have spent nearly £400 billion dealing with coronavirus. We have... Um, in the course of all of this, damaged the education of millions of children, left millions of elderly, lonely people out there in the country in a state of some depression, closed down hundreds of thousands of small businesses who were simply in the wrong sector and have gone bust. And we did it all because we were told this could be a repeat of the 1918 Spanish flu. This could be an event that would kill vast numbers of people. Now, we've seen again and again estimates of how bad the crisis could be that have nearly always been massively over-exaggerated. But this has really made me sit up and think. I've not seen it, commented on, written about anywhere else, but it's this. A freedom of information request was put in to the Office of National Statistics. It simply asked this question. Please could you advise on deaths purely from COVID with no other underlying causes? And the number is 17,371. Now, I know that 17,000 human beings and to their friends, their families, their partners, they, each one of those would have been a tragedy. But just think about that number. 700,000 people die in this country every year. We have just been through two years of on-off lockdown, of our rights and privileges being taken away, of perhaps many people not being diagnosed for upcoming serious diseases, and we find out that only 17,000 people have died with or of covid with no other underlying conditions. I think we need to have a proper debate about this. Well, I'm very pleased to say that joining me to discuss all of this is Professor Carol Sikora, oncologist of 50 years and the ex-director of the World Health Organization's Cancer Programme. Carol, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. I have to say, I'm blown away by this figure. I mean, I'm absolutely astonished that it's just 17,000 people who had no other underlying medical conditions. Um, am I getting overexcited about this number? I think maybe a little bit. Let me explain. It's actually very difficult to know why people actually die at the time they die from something. So with young people, it's very clear. If you're 25 and you have a road accident, or you get COVID and you die, then it's ascribable to that, these incidents. When you're 70, most people have got a variety of illnesses, heart disease, 
lung disease, liver failure, all sorts of things. And when you're 90, you have even more. And that's the problem. Because the average age of death, and this is critical for COVID, was 82.5 last year. 82.5 is beyond the normal life expectancy. So obviously people at 82 are going to have lots of what we call multiple comorbidities, lots of things wrong with them. And so it's very difficult to know, did COVID kill them? Did COVID push them? over the cliff into death, very sadly, or did they die of a heart attack or kidney failure? And that's the problem. The definition in the NHS of a COVID death is someone that tests positive for COVID on their NHS number 20, in the last 28 days. So quite a lot of people have done that, even though they're walking the streets now. Uh, they're not dead, uh, but they were tested at some point. If they'd gone into hospital with kidney failure and died, they would have been a COVID death. That's the problem. It's a statistical quirk in how we analyse it. It has been used by the politicians, of course. I understand that. But, you know, the other figure that you've just quoted, the average age of death last year was over 82 years of age, which is actually above, as, as you quite rightly say, uh, the average life expectancy. Has, it, has this all been worth it? I mean... And, and, and I'm not going to ask you about the civil liberties questions, but medically, you know, we now have six million people waiting for procedures on the National Health Service. We have backlogs in cancer, your speciality area, uh, diabetes screening and many other medical areas. Has half closing down the country for two years actually been worth it? When you look at the numbers of those, albeit you've questioned them, but the numbers of those who've died, you know, without any other underlying conditions and the average age of death, has it actually, in medical terms, has the lockdown, has the clearing out of the hospitals, has it actually been worth it? Or will we look back at this and regret it terribly? I think we're going to regret it when we look back. And you can only do it with a retrospectoscope. You've got to look back and see what happens. In my specialty, cancer, you'll look back and you'll see probably extra 50,000 deaths over the last 18 months from cancer you wouldn't have had. And that's the problem. Uh, the life years lost is another way of looking at things. If people are dying at the age of 82.5, on average, there are some tragic deaths in very young people with COVID. But if it's 82.5, that doesn't compare with a young woman of 40 with breast cancer, for example, that's missed her radiotherapy, missed her chemotherapy, and subsequently got recurrent disease and died. So it, it's a balance. And, you know, in a normal circumstance, we've got this organization called NICE that look at the, the cost effectiveness of different comparable treatments and try to come to some semblance of order with them in a logical way, they could look at this and say, look, spending all the money on COVID for certain types of patients wasn't really worth it. Better to spend it on cancer, on heart attacks, on strokes and so on. And that's the problem, trying to analyze the whole thing. There's been very little leadership in pointing the way forward uh, for doctors. We're all specialists now. So there's a kidney doctor, there's a cardiologist that does hearts, there's me that does cancer. We're all vying for, for resources within the system. And of course, COVID comes along and takes them all away, just as they've taken all our tax away. I and mean, the, the billions of pounds that we've spent on COVID has been taken away from other things, education, roads, railways, all sorts of things. So I think we've got a problem. We've got to get out of this, analyze it properly, and then go forward not doing this again.
Carol Segura, there's a lot to think about there. We'll be analysing this, I've no doubt, for many, many years to come. Thank you for joining me this evening. Today's inflation figures were out. It is now up to 5.4%. Consistently, the Bank of England and the government have underestimated the fact that inflation is back. I suspect this is far from the end of inflation, uh, because I think things like the rise in the price of gas, the price of oil, have not fully yet gone through to the rest of the economy. Uh, And I think inflation is here to stay. I think the cost of living crisis is real. Some of this is post-pandemic recovery. Much of it is caused by governments borrowing excessive amounts of money. Inflation is a disease of money predominantly caused by government and the cost of living crisis, I suspect, by April or May this year, will be the number one political issue in this country. Now, the National Crime Agency has launched an appeal to catch some of the UK's most wanted criminals. We were told with Brexit, with not having the European arrest warrant, it would be a real, real problem to get serious criminals back to face justice in the UK if they'd fled the country. Well, Mark White, GB News' Home and Security Editor, has joined them on this investigation and joins us now live from Madrid. Nigel, good evening. These are some of Britain's most wanted criminals, some of the most dangerous, <clears throat> fine assortment of murder suspects, serious drug runners and gun runners as well. People who have fled to Spain. It's not a new phenomenon. Many criminals have done that over the years. As you say, though, there was concern that post-Brexit it would be much harder to try to bring these people to justice. Well, that's not the case. As far as the National Crime Agency is concerned, they have excellent bilateral working arrangements with law enforcement officials in Spain and many other European countries, it's working, they say, just fine. And that's why today they launched a campaign trying to get British expats in particular right across Spain to try to look out for these 12 most wanted individuals and then to contact them if they have any idea where they might be. I was at the launch earlier today. Here's my report. It was the most shocking of gangland murders. Gunmen opening fire in broad daylight targeting a fellow drug dealer and caring nothing for the innocent children playing nearby. Four years after this murder in Greater Manchester, a key suspect, Callum Halpin, is now believed to be hiding out in Spain. He's been added to the National Crime Agency's list of their 12 most wanted fugitives who've fled to Spain and its holiday islands. In Spain's capital, British law enforcement officials joined their Spanish counterparts at the launch of a campaign to track them down. Each and every campaign that we've done, and I was involved in the last campaign five years ago, has been successful. And again, it's not just the sheer volume of the calls that we get, it's the quality of the information that's important. Because if we just get three or four key bits of information that leads to uh, a rapist or a murderer or a serious drug dealer being uh, picked up, arrested and brought back home to face justice, then that's got to be a good thing. The UK's National Crime Agency says British criminals are sadly mistaken if they believe they can escape to European countries post-Brexit. 
partnerships with the likes of Spain have ensured law enforcement agencies in both countries still have a close working relationship. The processes for sharing information are slightly different, but the impact is just the same. We have a great relationship with the Spanish authorities. The new measures that came in post the EU exit are working well here in Spain. Uh, and the proof of that is that last year, 25 people were arrested and returned back to the UK. Two years ago, this quiet road in Royden in Essex was sealed off as police dealt with the aftermath of a fatal drive-by shooting. A 50-year-old man was shot eight times in what's believed to have been a dispute between criminal gangs. The key suspect, Nana Opong, is another who's now understood to be in Spain, trying to evade UK authorities. The National Crime Agency say that their 12 most wanted fugitives will by now have tried to integrate into British expat communities across Spain and many will have returned to criminal activities. So it's up to Brits abroad, say the NCA, to try to identify the criminals among them. James Stevenson is a prolific drug trafficker who's also known to carry weapons. He's wanted, most recently, in relation to the attempted importation of more than a tonne of cocaine. The 12 most wanted fugitives are among the UK's most dangerous criminals, just as big a menace to Spain as they are to the UK. And so it's hoped people here will pass on anything they know that could finally bring these men to justice. Mark White, GB News, Madrid. Well, that was Mark White concluding his report. The long arm of the law is still all present and these fugitives will not escape. Now, I have to say, the feedback that has been coming in to Farage at GBnews.uk to the whole question of was David Davis right to say in the name of God go has been absolutely enormous. And I thank you for that feedback. Before I get to that, I've got one little what the Farage moment. And it is my old favourites, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Aren't they wonderful? Aren't they magnificent people? We learned today they now have a network of 11 companies that have been set up in the tax haven of Delaware, uh, which, of course, operates outside the rest of U.S. law. And every single time you see anything these two do, the whole thing just reeks of total and utter hypocrisy. So more of your thoughts. Graham says Boris should stay as PM. Partygate is a media vendetta and media frenzy. He has had major achievements as PM, including paying for the vaccine advance in 2020 and getting ahead of the EU in getting people jabbed. Also, the economy has opened up earlier than the EU. We're back to pre-pandemic levels with a record number of people employed. Davis is wrong. Well, hang on. David Davis said at the start of that speech in PMQs that he had praised the Prime Minister for all of those things. What David Davis was saying was that leaders take responsibility. They don't shirk it. And his view was that actually Boris Johnson, in that interview he did with Sky News yesterday, was trying to put the blame on everybody else. Frank says, I firmly believe that David Davis is right. The Conservative Party is over for Boris, who has tried repeatedly to wiggle free of all his misdemeanours like a slithery eel on a hook. He has been caught with his pants down publicly again, and if he had a modicum of human decency in him, 
he would not wait to be dethroned. In the name of God, this man must get out of number 10. Caroline says, no, Boris Johnson should not go. We need him to see off all the restrictions. Well, that's kind of, in England, happened today. Also adds, I don't trust any other cabinet member to do so. And finally, David says, he's resigned before for reasons seemingly known exclusively to himself. He's always been a bit flaky. Someone recently accused him of being lazy and thick as mints. Well, <laughs> David Davis has been in politics a long time. He's got his supporters. He, of course, has got his detractors. But I tell you what he has got. He's got all of you on GB News talking and making comments. In a moment, I'll be joined by author and body language expert Judy James. She's joining me on Talking Pints. I'm going to show her some of those clips of Boris Johnson and see what she makes of it. It's open again. Yep, the GB News pub is here. And Judy James, author and body language expert, is my guest tonight on Talking Pints. Welcome, Judy. Welcome. I feel unduly girly having a Prosecco. What do you have? Whatever you like. <laughs> I should have had real ale, shouldn't I? But... No, we have people have cups of tea. That is, believe it or not, alcohol-free lager. Do it's... I believe that? Hang, let me look at your body language. Uh, I'm not uh, sure. No, he it, it <laughs> I'm in trouble already. I, I mean, before we get to body language, and I, mean, it, I must say it would be terrifying to go and have lunch with you because you're <laughs> analysing me the whole time. But we'll just talk a little bit. You've had a very, very interesting life, starting off on the catwalk yes. and then becoming someone that sort of helped and coached and advised other people and one or two famous clients that came that sort of came through you. I, gosh, should I name names? But, um, oh, yeah, go on. It, it, <laughs> Over a drink. No one's watching, honestly. It's fine. It's fine. And I also <laughs> don't believe that body language. <laughs> you might be my first famous client, actually, the way we're going. Um, yes, I have had several famous clients. I tend to do corporate work, so I tend to speak at conferences or have large yep. groups. But... Um, High up people in the industry, not politicians, I have to say. So for me, this is like my Attenborough moment, sitting with the kind of people that I'm normally analysing yeah, myself. Yeah. So sitting with a politician who's actually not Ex. hating me right now. Ex-politician. Once a politician. No, I was a businessman for years, politics. It's in your blood. I wasn't, but funny enough, actually, I wasn't in it for a career. I was in it because I wanted to bring change. And that did and, show. And, 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 I, and I meant that, and I think... I think with that, actually, people could see it, you know. Yeah, it does. Uh, that literally does come out in your body language, in your charisma. Um, uh, listen, we're probably jumping ahead now, but it would yeah. be the same thing with Trump. It's somebody who's not a politician, so that yeah. people like the feel of that, I think, now. Yeah, we'll come back to career politicians <laughs> in a moment. There'll been a few of them. But somehow this sort of, you know, going and, and becoming a coach and Naomi Campbell was someone that you she was, yeah. helped and that must have been an incredible thing to do. But you've become this extraordinary author. Share with us the books that you've written. I've, I've written 26 books, I have to say that, because uh, my mother would kill me if I didn't, um, about almost... Anything. I mean, a lot of it to do with my job, so communications, um, body language. Uh, I've written what everything says about you, so I probably analysed the point that you're drinking right now, which was more of a tongue-in-cheek book. But I've written yeah. novels as well. And I think back in the day they were called bonkbusters. Yep. Which was a bit of a showstopper. But and does that make money? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. No, that, that was the money spinner. Um, business books are good, but you do kind of need something. You know those Awaken the Giant within books where people actually don't read them, they just buy them for the title? If you've got that kind of book charisma, that's where you make all the money, where people... But you're sort of writing books, uh, you know, trying to, I guess, inspire people to, to succeed in different areas of life. Do people still buy books? I mean, something like that, would they go to Kindle, perhaps, or would they still buy a book? I, I think a bit of both. I think that, that it was during lockdown that people went back to books again. I absolutely love the whole experience of a book myself. Mm. I like the, mm. the paper, the feel of it. I'm, I'm a person that will read a book where it looks as though nobody's looked at it. I kind of peep in between them because I don't like breaking the spine. Um, and I think people do still like that experience. And I, I regret slightly that I now read most of my newspapers online. I used to love going out the doing same, the whole cafe experience you yeah. know, with a lovely newspaper and I'd, I'd actually read it, whereas now uh, there's less of a tendency to get into the article. It's headline, headline. Yeah, flicking absolutely. through, flicking through. What interests me is... How do you become a body language expert? I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's no sort of university course in it. I mean, and, and clearly, the number of television programmes you've been on across all the channels talking about this and analysing people, how? How do you get into it? I, that's like, how did you get into politics? I mean, I, I think these things find you and grow on you in a way. I almost predate when body language was a big deal. So it wasn't as though I was following a trend or anything. There wasn't... I mean, clearly, body language was around forever, but um, it, it was something that I was asked to do because I was doing a lot of advice to people going on job interviews, uh, school leavers, and I, I thought, actually, I wonder if there's more to it than most of the books mm. were, were telling them. I have to tell you a fascinating defining moment as to where my own interest started though and it's quite gruesome if you don't mind um, I was working in a company in the King's Road and there was a training school next door that was doing makeup courses and a guy used to pop in for coffee good looking guy very personable fashionably dressed charismatic and we had quite a, a, a sort of blocking thing we didn't let many people in but he, he kind of got under the radar because he was so charming he was, um, he would have become a serial killer, except that he was stopped before he got to that. And he was literally, on one occasion, when I was sitting talking to him like I'm with you, mm. he'd murdered somebody the night before. And I thought, you know, animals love to feel safe by thinking what's called the attribution effect. They can spot the good people, the bad people. And I was so fascinated that, that even retrospectively, there was nothing in this guy's appearance of his body language that would have sent out any warnings. Mm. And it, it kind of sparked an interest in me. Um, wow. So I was asked to do it for business but, um, and, and to write books on it. But that, for me, was the start of a kind of a passionate interest. Right, let's put you to work. <laughs> There's no such thing as a free drink here at GB News. Let's have a look at Boris Johnson. So yesterday, Boris Johnson was visiting a hospital and Sky News asked him a couple of questions. Let's just see how Boris responded. I, I do humbly apologise to people for uh, misjudgments that were made, but that is the, the very, very best of my recollection about this event. That's what I've, uh, I've said to, to the inquiry. We'll have to see what they, what they say. Dominic Lawson wrote in the Sunday Times that, that, as well, you had been told by two officials it was a party and should be cancelled. You were dismissive. He writes, you said they were overreacting. 
said Martin Reynolds was your loyal Labrador. Is that also untrue? Well, I, I've told you, uh, and I, I repeat, I'm deeply sorry for misjudgments that were, that were, that were made. You and, misjudgments? And yes, if, uh, because ultimately... Because it seems like you're trying Beth, to pass the I, blame No, I carry, I carry full responsibility for, for what took place. But nobody told me, I can absolutely, I'm absolutely categorical about this, nobody said to me, this is an event that is against the rules, uh, that is in breach of uh, what we're asking everybody else to do, uh, should not go ahead. So that was Boris Johnson yesterday, and I'm just looking at that with absolutely zip expertise, but even I could see, thinking about it, he was looking down at the floor mm -hmm. for much of the interview, he wasn't looking at the interviewer, kept shaking his head. He's in very, very defensive mode there. Yeah, I mean, and I have to say you're, you're proving my point that we're all experts on body language. <laughs> no, we are. I mean, all I do is I can take what you've just said and see this is where you got that from, this is where you got that impression from. In a way, I would actually call this overkill signals. I think he almost went too far. I think he thought that the mask saved him slightly, but of course it didn't. It focused on the most expressive part of the body, which is the eyes. Yeah. So, you know, there we all yeah. were looking at this man's eyes. I think possibly he felt that as, as the interview went on. And that's when we started to get these very emphatic, prolonged cut-off rituals, the, the looking down. Um, he was very hunched as well, so it, it, he was obviously adopting his apologetic mode. But that cut-off ritual lasted when they asked him about the Queen about 11 seconds he actually kept his gaze down. Mm. And when he did come up, it was that, you know, this kind of naughty schoolboy with the headmaster thing that he's doing? I didn't, I didn't know that it was, you know, a party. Yeah, yeah. Nobody told me. Um, so we're getting a, an evasive mode there. We're getting maybe overkill with the I'm so sorry signals. And I think... And quite hard to believe. Well, it's not only hard to believe, Nigel, it's also the fact that he's still the man that's running the country, you know. I mean, if you look at mm. all the things that we need him to do... Well, I know. You know <laughs> and yet, and yet, Judy, he comes back today, 24 hours later... Absolutely. ..in the Absolutely. House of Commons. Let's, let's listen to Boris Johnson. Let's see him in the House of Commons earlier on today. Uh, what we got, it was like a lilo that's been reinflated. So we got yeah. the return of the smug smile, which normally works because it's what's called a tie sign with the audience. Normally, what let's see it. If it's ready, let's see it, guys. We listened to the Labour front bench in the run-up to Christmas and New Year, Mr Speaker. We would have stayed in uh, restrictions with huge damage uh, to the economy. And it's because, of the, it's because of the judgments that I've taken and that we have taken uh, in Downing Street that we now have the fastest growing economy. Looking incredibly in confident and he's leaning against the dispatch box and the arms are... Well. I mean, later on, David Davis did Polax in, but at this stage... So what's happened here, Judy? Have people said to him you were too apologetic yesterday or has he decided himself he was too and, and really my question to you which is the real Boris Johnson oh, well, that is the million dollar <laughs> and I love the way you pull an innocent face when you ask it so I'm gonna go well it's that one there um, Boris clearly trades on this shared joke thing 
that works really well. As I say, that smirky smile, when we're watching him, because he didn't look, and goodness knows why, because he's been seeped in politics almost since he was born, but he still looks like the outsider to a certain extent, not as much as Trump, but maybe the maverick. Mm. Mm. Um, and so when he's surrounded by all the sort of usual going toings and froings, that, that smirky smile, it makes us feel, yeah, Boris, you know, we are laughing at it as well with you, but it's when we are with that smile. To bring it today, um, I think, may have lost the audience a little bit. To come back so differently from how he was yesterday, I don't think yesterday was the real Boris. I hope it wasn't, because we had a red, almost teary eye. It, it wasn't somebody you'd want to be in charge of a country. I think he felt that it was appropriate to get the Boris bounce back again today. Um, and as you say, his body language was very yeah. ebullient. He was yeah. cracking jokes. Um, he was leaning heavily on the dispatch box, but in quite an arrogant way. Uh, I'm not even sure David Davis finished him off. He, he got to the thing that he always does, which is he, uh, when Starmer's asked the last question. And by the way, I don't think Starmer's body language is remotely up to pummeling Boris, I have to say, not, mm. particularly not for this scenario. Um, but, yeah, when he, got to the, when he gets to the last question and, and Starmer's finished, he really does his rebel rousing, shouting, we got the stabbing finger, we got the clunking fist. Yeah. And that's how he wanted to finish. Uh, then Brutus got him in the back. But why <laughs> did David Davis, he did a dying fall when he got to that big I quote. Know. He, 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 he could have finished more strongly. I yeah, would have. But he needed, it was a Brian Blessed moment, wasn't it? Yes. And I know I've got, yeah, yes. he should have been ratchet. But I think that dying fall made it feel as though his own mind said, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. It, it, it lacked Congress. Well, I have to say, Judy James, a completely different interpretation of what happened on PMQs today from a different way of looking at things. Fascinating. I'm, I'm going to get you back on at some big dramatic moments and ask your oh. view. And it's a delight to have you on Talking Pipes. It's lovely and to meet you. Thank you very much. We're coming towards the end of the programme and it is Barrage the Farage where you send in the questions and I don't see them before. Here goes. Jane asks, if Boris goes, who will halt this crippling green agenda? Well, I doubt it'll be Rishi. I doubt it'll be Liz Trust because they have been a part of it already. You know what? One thing they always say in Tory leadership elections, the favourite very rarely wins. Mrs Thatcher in 75 came through the middle of the field. John Major in 1990 came through the middle of the field. David Cameron, who beat David Davis in 2005, was a rank outsider and came through it. So you never know, you never, ever know who's going to win this contest as and when it comes. James asks, Nigel, as a master of organising defections, as you did for Carswell and Reckless to UKIP, what is the downside for Labour here? Or is it a genuine coup? Well, I don't know. I mean, this particular fella uh, appears to me to be a rather loudmouth, uncouth type uh, who isn't particularly going to be liked by the young Labour activists in that constituency. But to me, the dishonour, the dishonour of crossing the floor and joining another party without offering yourself to the electorate in a by-election is a disgrace. And I'll say it again, with Reckless and Carswell, when they joined UKIP, I made them and they were happy to have by-elections, and it worked, and it kept our trust with the public. What has happened today, frankly, is a disgrace. 